Hello and welcome to As It Comes, live from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and about a month ago I had my first orchestral rehearsal in six months. As performing gigs are so few and far between these days, I was incredibly grateful for the opportunity. I was so prepared, much more prepared for anything I used to do back in the day. It made me realise how much of my life I lived day to day. I used to be very busy and was earning decently, but the trade-off was that I felt inadequately prepared a lot of the time. Anyway, I wanted to make sure I was prepped, so I put the dates in my diary, haven't done that in a while, read the risk assessment documents several times, practiced the rap. On the day, I prepped my masks I was going to wear, my clothes, packed a sandwich for the break, a textbook example of being prepared. Until I got on the wrong train. I hadn't had to catch a train in so long, plus I'd only caught trains a few times from where I live now, as we moved in shortly before the pandemic took off. For some reason, I got the train that left at the same time as the one I was meant to get on, and only realised when the next station was announced. I panicked, and decided that my best option was to get off the train and run to the connecting station. The next 12 minutes were of great discomfort. Running to stations was something I would take in my stride back pre-COVID. It's been a good while since I've had to do the last-minute dash for a train. Breathing was a struggle, as well as the fact that I don't enjoy running at the best of times, let alone with a cello on my back, wearing a mask, grasping my bag containing my carefully crafted sandwich. I made it to East Croydon Station with two minutes to spare. I'm surprised I didn't fall flat on my face running down that ramp at the station. If you know, you know the one. The one they tell you not to run down. I piled myself onto the train and sat down in a puddle of my own sweat, taking slight comfort in the fact that my appearance, at least, would repel others from getting close to me, thus enacting effective social distancing. How stupid is that? First rehearsal in six months, and I was almost late. I literally had six months to prepare for it. I laugh about it now, though. <laughs> no matter how prepared you are, there's always something unexpected that life can throw at you. I mean, look at 2020. But I should probably get better at checking the trains from now on. My guest this episode is Daniel Rainey. Daniel trained as a violinist before becoming an artist manager for Keynote Artist Management. He lives up in Scotland, where he chatted to me on Zoom about his career journey, what an artist manager does, how his training as a violinist has informed his job, and what's been keeping him busy during the pandemic. Also turns out he's a bit of a fan of Shostakovich, which is always a good thing. Have a listen to my chat with Daniel. Daniel Rainey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me remotely from Scotland. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. So we're here to talk a bit about your job as an artist manager. But first of all, let me ask you, how's lockdown been for you? I feel a bit funny asking that question because it's almost like coming back from a summer break or something and asking people, how's your summer been? How's Christmas? How's your lockdown? <laughs> Well, for Christmas is a long way away yet, or it feels like it anyway. It's only half a lockdown away. 
Because <laughs> that's a good way of thinking. It's been fine. Um, I mean, I moved, I lived in London for almost seven years and then made the move back up to Scotland. Funnily enough, we were going to be working from home and I decided to come up to Scotland just for a couple of weeks um, rather than sort of be in London by myself. And then arrived in Scotland and after about two days, then lockdown happened and was stuck here for three months still <laughs> with not a huge amount of um, stuff with me most of my stuff was back in London so I had to live on very little items of clothing for that time which, which was a little bit tricky so towards the beginning of the summer I went back to, and moved back up to Scotland working remotely and our world is still moving slightly but it's very different to how it would normally be but I've just been trying to read plenty listen plenty and you know lots of movie binges like most people <laughs> yeah for sure i mean this has definitely been the year for the boom of netflix all the streaming services oh, massively, massively. and nintendo switch for sure i mean i think they all sold out at the beginning of lockdown oh i'm a bit of an old school. I've, I've got a nintendo 64 so i'm a little bit more old school oh wow yeah. i'm so impressed you still have one of those that's incredible what games are you playing <laughs> i'm playing my favorite is probably lilac wars and um, that's probably my favorite and mario mario 64 it was quite hard to track down the way. I, I ordered it as a kind of um, treat to myself late last year and hunt on Amazon quite a bit to find it. But no, it was it's, it was worth it. <laughs> Did you know they've remastered Mario 64 for the Nintendo Switch? Have they? It's coming out in like two weeks or next week or something. So Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, the one that was on the GameCube. Oh, wow. And Mario Galaxy, the one that was on the Wii. Because I noticed some of the very old N64 games that you can still order some of them are so expensive now because I guess, you know, they're so rare and they're just, you know, kind of collector's items, but I managed to get a good, a good price. And another thing I've been doing a lot is, you know, especially just, you know, watching things on TV, but I've been revisiting shows that I used to watch when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, so things like all those like Nickelodeon shows that I used to watch when I was younger. I mean, I don't know other kind of 90s kids might remember, but shows like Keenan and Kel and like Sister Sister yeah, and Nickelodeon was and all those kind of things. Do you, do you have that? Usually? I didn't watch a lot of it. You know what? I used to always watch Nickelodeon when I was babysitting the kids next door because ah. I lived next door to this household where they had an eight-year-old, three six-year-olds and a five-year-old. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was my first sort of foray into babysitting. And I remember they were always watching it because they had the paid subscription cable whatever maybe it's not fond memories for you then <laughs> <laughs> it was fine i remember watching things like was hey arnold a nickelodeon oh yeah i, yeah. Oh, yeah, I loved hey arnold the football, the football head, head yeah. and yellow hair and everything and yeah yeah that's right and cat dog yes so they were joined together yeah that was a good as well of course you do know you're a nickelodeon well that is such a bizarre concept isn't it like you don't forget that in a hurry <laughs> but no, that that was a good cartoon. I like that one. Cool. So you've been revisiting Nickelodeon cartoons. That's great. A lot of Nickelodeon, yeah. Especially, I don't know. I feel like at these sort of times, you you sort of start reflecting on your life a little bit, and then you you start reminiscing, and then it... you need comfort, don't you? And I think those childhood shows bring us that for sure, for sure. So it sounds like you've kept yourself busy during lockdown. Yeah, I'm quite dare I say I'm quite good at kind of adapting when when I need to and finding ways to sort of stay positive and finding little nuggets of joy and little things. And I think that's so necessary as a musician, isn't it? You need to be adaptable and you need to stay positive, especially now. A lot of things where it's easy to see the negative side of things. Yes. You need that positivity to get you through and get the people around you through as well. I yes, think. absolutely, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, you're an artist manager and you work for 
keynote artist management. So can you tell us a bit about what an artist manager actually does? Because I think many audience members might not know what goes on behind the scenes of getting an artist on stage. And likewise, many students coming out of college may be unaware that that's a viable career option or that it even exists. So tell us a little bit about how you got into artist management. You know, I started my life as a started piano when I was, uh, and I started violin sort of shortly after that. And I was pretty serious musician in my youth. Particularly, I mean, violin was the love of my life for, for very, very long. I mean, it still is a little bit. But um, <laughs> uh, I was a very, very serious player and um, wanted nothing else other than to be a musician. I had the usual kind of trajectory of, you know, young musicians. I, I went to junior conservatoire at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland for four years, and then I did my undergraduate there. Um, and then I went to Royal Academy of Music and did my master's there for two years and then kind of spent, as most musicians do, a, a couple of years, you know, sort of freelancing and doing a bit of everything. You know, to, you know I mean, I, I did pretty well as a student. You know, I was I was very lucky. I got to do some some great things and, you know, I, I soloed with orchestra quite a lot. I led orchestras, I did lots of chamber music and won prizes and things. But I, I think as increasingly as I got older, I found that my love for music itself was a little bit stronger than my love for actually physically playing it. <laughs> I think it's true for a lot of people. I would hope that most musicians prefer the music itself rather than the kind of physical act of, of making it. Yeah, like there is that joy in making it, but also like there's the joy of sitting back and just listening to it. And I think if you're, absorbing you're going it. to be a professional musician, you you do have to love that side of it, at least a little bit, the kind of physical aspect of it, because otherwise, you know, you're putting yourself through an awful lot <laughs> of very <laughs> grueling, you know, all of that practice and, and kind of physical work. Which I think sometimes musicians underestimate. There's a great quote, I can't remember who said it, past musicians are the Olympians of the small muscles. And it's, it's very true. Um, and people do, I think, underestimate the kind of yeah. physical side of it so it was kind of an organic thing I mean I you know I would be in concerts but I would start to ask questions as to you know well how the soloist is playing here and and you know who decided that and and did, did they decide what they play or does somebody else decide and how many rehearsals did they need and you know who who decides that and, and how you know how do they get from where they need to go and you know how, who decides you know this and the other and you realize just all of the things that go on behind the scenes that, that make it possible and you know so I started kind of researching a little bit more and then decided to give it a go really and I started applying for lots of positions as, as many people have to do when they you know when you're starting out and you, you don't really have you know experience and then I was very lucky to get this job with uh, with Keynote uh, in January of 2017 um, when I started as an assistant artist manager and then within sort of two years I, I graduated up to an artist manager which is what I do now. So what sort of skills would these companies be looking for from recent music graduates if you've got a performance background or say a composition background mm -hmm. or something that's not necessarily to do with arts admin? What are some transferable skills that can be carried over into that? Right now it's it's a very difficult time in the industry and I do believe and you know hope that in a few maybe a year or two years that it will come back again because sadly quite a lot of people are being made redundant and a lot of those people will be very young people who are just starting out in their careers but nevertheless I still think it's important to look forward and that in time things will improve and that those opportunities will be there again for for young people so 
Um, in terms of skills, I mean, basically an artist manager, one normally starts as an assistant artist manager first. So an assistant artist manager, you're mainly dealing with the kind of day-to-day running of an artist's life. So all of the sort of logistics and lots of travel and their general kind of calendar and making sure that they, when they get up in the morning that they know where they need to be. and what. So which building are you performing in today and how are you going to get there? So lots of booking taxis, booking flights and things like that. Oh, yes. Lots of that, which is actually, I mean, it, it seems quite, um, you know, kind of simple and, you know, humdrum, but it's incredibly important because, you know, when artists, I mean, obviously not right now, but when they, you know, are traveling, you know, sometimes all over the world and, you know, they have however many concertos or operas or symphonies or whatever they have, to, it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of work and, you know, little things like a, a pickup or a taxi or a nice hotel or, or a flight being on time, you know, all of these kind of things and really help put their mind at rest. I imagine if they've got to play Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto in five different cities in as many days, the last thing they want to think about is some things like, as you mentioned before, flights, taxis, hotels, but also quite important things that might hinder their performance, yes, like massive. having the right work visa or something. Oh, yes, yes. That's a whole other thing. Is um, That must be a big thing. Yeah, things like visas and also tax issues and, and just... There's so many kind of administrative sort of things that have to kind of be in place. And the job of we do, especially as assistants, is to kind of take that pressure off the artist so that they can concentrate on what matters most to them, which is, of course, performance and and being the very best that they can be. So and then artist managers, I guess, which is the next sort of level up you're dealing with, I guess, slightly larger, broader artistic things and helping to kind of shape the trajectory of an artist's career. So, for example, would it be things like making contact with orchestras that soloists could work with or the type of repertoire that they might pick? Exactly. Every artist is different. And, you know, when an artist joins a management, you know, some of them are at different stages in their career. You know, some are just starting out and, you know, are very young. There are some that are more established. And every artist needs a slightly kind of different approach depending on what their priorities are and just what kind of person they are. That role has more to do with, as you say, reaching out to promoters and presenters and, and sort of quote unquote selling um, an artist and, and obviously trying to build up their diary and trying to shape that in a way that fits in with what they want to achieve artistically. So if they want to focus on a particular kind of repertoire or if they there's a certain territory that they are um, they haven't played in so much and want to play in more. It's it's our job to kind of hopefully provide a career that is satisfying to to what they are sort of aspiring to. So I imagine you're kind of helping the orchestras or the promoters fill in those pieces of the puzzle with your artists so that they get to tour their repertoire, whatever they want to do. And then you also sort of have to work with them quite closely to ensure that, for example, you don't accidentally program five Sibelius concertos in a row or something. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, it's it, as I say, again, it varies from, from artist to artist. You know, if the artist is, is very established, then often many offers will come in from orchestras because if they're very popular and they're very much in demand and it's more about who you have to unfortunately say no to because, you know, an artist can't, you know, do absolutely everything that's asked of them. Whereas with a younger artist that's starting out that isn't quite so well known, it can take a little bit more labour to introduce. I mean, usually most of the time they've already won a competition or they they have some, you know, note of recognition somewhere. But I imagine if they're starting out, they have to be a little bit more flexible with the companies that they're working with. Yeah, I mean, as I say, they're all different in terms of what they want to 
achieve and, and what their goals are. But yeah, they, they have to, sometimes it's, it's tricky with younger artists because, you know, when you're starting out and someone messages and asks you to play something, you're, you're going to say yes. Yeah, <laughs> but you have to be very careful. And I think that applies to not just, you know, soloists, but to any, any musician, whether you're a freelancer, whether you're a chamber musician or a whatever, you know, you have to, you have to manage that very carefully because of course you want to get engagements yeah. and you want to play and you yeah. want to, you know, obviously everyone has to make a living as well, but you have to be very careful that you don't compromise the quality of your work. And also I think artistic goals, you have to make sure that those aren't compromised mm. either. Yeah, that you are agreeing to do work that you actually want to do. It's not just saying yes because it might lead on to something else. While that is important, as you say, but yeah, you've got to make sure that the quality is there, that yes, you've said yes to this new concerto that you don't know. Are you able to realistically learn it before the concert date? Exactly, exactly. You know, and every date is different. And I sort of have the artists that I work with certain criteria that, that has to be, at least one of them has to be met um, in order for it to be a worthwhile date to, to say yes to. But again, it's, it's a very kind of individual basis. So you have to kind of slightly switch your way of thinking depending on which artist you're talking about at that time. I imagine, though, as someone who has freelanced before, and you know, having to manage a busy schedule for yourself, that's something that could be really, really useful for taking into this line of work. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realise is, as a musician, they don't realise how large a skill set they already have. Things like managing yes. a diary, things like logistics, like how are you going to get from A to B or from this venue to that venue? And in a way, yeah. it's like you're just managing all those logistics that you used to do for yourself but for someone else and on a yes. larger scale. Yeah, and I think for sure, I mean, when I when I started, I mean, there, there were some things that I, I really didn't know about, but I, I definitely think that my musical background has helped, you know, immeasurably in, in what I do now. And it also, I think as a musician, you have an amazing amount of empathy, which you really need when you're working with musicians and when you're working with artists, even I guess I'm an administrator, I'm an, I, I technically work in an office, but it's a very emotional job because we're, we're all very passionate about the art form and we want all of our artists to succeed. And throughout, you know, even the time I've been working so far, I, I always find parallels between some of the things that I experienced growing up as a musician and some of the challenges that I face in an office environment and, and in a working environment. I always make the in my head the comparison between, you know, sort of when you're learning a work for the first time, for example, whether you're preparing it for a lesson or a competition or an audition or a concert, whatever it might be. And I think anyone who's done that knows that that process is very rarely, if ever, a kind of step-by-step -step or sort of incremental improvement. You know, some days it's going really well and other days it's not. The improvement can be quite kind of hit or miss. And that can be really quite disheartening. You know, if you get to the end of the week and you say, you know, I've spent there is a day practicing this piece for the past two weeks you know why isn't it just better um, <laughs> but sometimes when you just step away from that and maybe take a break and look at something else or or just try and clear your mind a little bit and maybe come back to it in a week and suddenly those issues and those problems it, it kind of has molded together yeah. and I noticed that in a different context with what I do now you know whether it's you know, trying to organise a very complicated travel itinerary where you're flying here, then and everywhere, and there's lots of logistics, or whether you're looking at something much broader, you're trying to introduce a new artist to a place that they haven't been before, or trying to increase their profile in a certain place, or whatever. It's the same 
kind of process. You know, I have some days where it's I'm typing away and the emails are just flying in and out of its great speed and everything sounds really good, very productive, and it all feels very positive and it's, you know, you're making great progress. And then other days where, you know, you just, yeah, I can't think what to write and I don't know what to say and no one's answering my calls and, you know, I, that meeting that I had booked has now been cancelled. Oh, it was all going so well, and now it's all gone. Yeah, exactly. It's never as smooth as you expect it would be. And you have to accept those things. Yeah, massively. And in the same way that sometimes when you just try and clear your mind a little bit and maybe concentrate on something else and just give it a chance to breathe, suddenly answers and opportunities and things come to light. In a way, I'd say this lockdown period has been quite a useful thing for a lot of musicians, for myself as well. And this goes back to what you mentioned before about really reassessing your love for music and stepping mm. away because I do feel like for me because I've not been performing so much anymore no one's been performing yeah, so much anymore and obviously doing other things like podcast or vegetable gardening and then you kind of come back to music with fresh ears and new insights and I think that's really important isn't it because when we're doing music all the time that's when you get into that mode as you mentioned before where you're just focusing on one thing and things might not work out but sometimes you need that other perspective to let things breathe yeah totally I mean one of the things that I still do often now is like most agencies we have a sort of uh, software that we use that um, gives us access to a kind of database and a diary feature which has all of our artists you know what they're what they're going and, and where they're playing and what they're everything that's going on um, which we use to keep up to date sometimes I, I like to look through that and often look at past engagements that have been because so often you're when you, in this kind of job you're you're constantly on a bit of a treadmill because you've got to get this project completed and you've got to make sure this date is, is signed and sealed and you've got to negotiate this contract and then next season and the next season and it, it can be a bit of a treadmill and and I remember often um, quite near the start of my career with this I you know, like many jobs you have a, a chat and a kind of appraisal as to how you feel things are going and I haven't really thought about how I feel about anything because I've been too busy sort of thinking about, about you know, you're too busy thinking about the artists and other people. So often I will sit and look through my artists' old engagements and when I look at certain weeks that they've done, I'll say, oh gosh, you know, I remember, you know, I had to overcome a really difficult negotiation there that I managed to, to fix. And I'll remember that engagement where, you know, somebody missed their flight and we had to rebook and, you know. Or, you know, and all those little things, you look back and you see all those little um, bumps in the road that are so important because you, you look back on them and think, yeah. you know, I was able to deal with that is very heartening. And, and, and I, I think that's something that I would hope that, you know, I certainly used to do that as a musician when it's, if you've had a very busy month or a very tricky period with lots of pieces and kind of stressful situations, you can look back at those and, and draw strength from those. It's very important, I think, to do that when you have the time. So. Yeah. And tell yourself, look, I'm still standing. Remember that horrendous week this time exactly. last year? I'm not sure how relevant it is now <laughs> looking back at my diary and being like, oh, look how busy I was because it's some what depressing in previous times I used to use that as a strategy where sometimes I'd look in my diary and think oh my goodness like there's really nothing coming up this February's looking really really sparse but then a really good thing to mm. do is to look back on last year's diary and you see that things do fill up and it's having that hope and that faith in yourself that things will get better and I think with that mindset and that attitude yeah. you'll make things happen you know exactly yeah something I think I would say to students as well any kind of music student that whether they're at conservatoire or, and they're not sure which kind of direction they want to go in or, or, or whether it's right for them that you know I think musicians 
is I think even more so now, um, especially moving out of the pandemic, we'll have to be more flexible than than ever. And it's a mixed bag, I think, the journey of training to become a musician. It's, I think, sometimes painted as quite a kind of glamorous time. And, and anyone who's done it knows that it's, it's not quite, you know, it can, it's emotionally and quite a turbulent time. And, and there are highs that are very high and, and lows that are very low. And it can be quite difficult to navigate through that. But one thing that I'm quite convinced about now is that the skills that you develop as a musician are some of the most important skills I think you'll probably ever have. And they will inform your life no matter what direction you take, whether you stay mm-hmm. in music or or you go to a, a different side of the profession like like I've done, or whether you go to something, you know, completely different. Because as I say, even you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the process of kind of learning a piece and all of that, those skills are so transferable to kind of any situation in life. And when you're cultivating those skills, you know, when you're 15 or younger, you know, in your, your teens, and it's a real investment in yourself. So I always say to people that some people have this kind of, I think, slightly dangerous um, attitude of, well, you know, if I don't make it as a star soloist, or if I'm not, you know, a concert master, or if I'm not this world famous professor, or if, or if I'm not making money solely from playing my instrument, yeah. then I've somehow failed. And that's not true at all. It's-, it's making people aware that the definition of a musician isn't just one thing, because I think that's the danger that a lot of students fall into. As you mentioned, they think, I'm going to be a soloist, I'm going to be a leader, I'm going to be just do this one avenue of music but the definition of a musician is so broad these days and I think especially during the lockdown everyone's realizing how much they need to diversify their skills we can't rely on one source anymore no no absolutely not and you can you know you can see that especially with some younger artists up and coming you know they the ones that um that I'm usually most attracted to are of course they they play brilliantly and they have very credible and but they're not interested in just doing what's always been done and I think that's the key for you know any musician is to never be too comfortable doing what you're doing and always be open to other things and to to new things and I think those are the ones that have the longest careers and the most satisfying careers because you're always willing to push yourself and to try new things and to learn exactly yeah because I think you've got to make sure that you've got a career in several years time you know what if you had a couple seasons where you did all the main concertos and then you were sick of those, what do you do next? You know, you have to be open-minded to, to, yeah. to keep going and explore new repertoire, new ways of making music. So thank you for that. I think it's really, really valuable that people hear about different avenues of being a musician. I was wondering if you have any funny or amusing <laughs> anecdotes of experiences that you've encountered in your job as being an artist manager. Because as you mentioned before, there's that oh, slight God. stereotype of the glamorous life and everything. But I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're just sitting, you know, booking dates all day and the money just pours in. No. And I mean, there's always those kind of funny email kind of typos and things like that. Because, you know, you've, you're dealing with just so much information. I mean, we're, we're quite a small agency, but, you know, you're dealing with a huge amount of information at any one time. And you often have to be very kind of diplomatic. You're kind of the middle person because, of course, you want to keep the promoters and presenters, you know, you want to keep them happy because you want them to pick your artist. But equally, you you have to make sure that the artist is protected and that the artist's interests are looked after. And so you're, you're dealing with huge amounts of information all the time. And, you know, inevitably, you know, there can be 
you might send an email to the wrong Davina by mistake. <laughs> There's so many of us. <laughs> Things like, um, oh, I mean, I've had a, a couple of occasions where, you know, an artist had, there's been a, maybe a scheduling conflict and maybe a small thing that the artist didn't really want to do and um, something's come in and they're not able to kind of get out of that interview or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and then you end up writing an email saying, oh, great, no, you can get out of this now. And you've actually sent it to that person. Oh, the classic thing when you send the email. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everyone does it. So, but yeah, things like that. And, yeah. you know, there, there's always often kind of travel disasters. I had a, a real, you'll know, maybe you've experienced this as a cellist, but I had to book a series of flights for, for a cellist at one point. And, you know, some airlines are, are you know, you can Mr. Cello or Mrs. Cello or whatever, and as the extra seat and it's fine, but other airlines, you actually have to call them up and you have to, you know, you know, the whole thing, you've got to give their measurements and the height and all the specifications. And then, you know, you have to do the booking twice on the phone and it takes a really long time. And I just spend a whole bank holiday doing that because it just takes so long. And then, of course, they booked the wrong flight and then it, it was very, very last minute and I called back and they wanted to put them on a different flight that would be too late and they wouldn't get where they needed to go to in time. And, you know, you, you can have all kinds of fights like that over, over travel issues. Oh, that sounds super stressful. I had one incident where another artist called, um, unfortunately, they'd, they'd lost their phone and, and you know, they stuck and then we I had to try and get someone to come and pick them up and weren't quite sure where they were and you know all these kind of things I mean it's, it sounds funny now but it can be quite stressful at the time when you're having to yeah totally because I mean it's just like as I mentioned before like if you're working freelancing in any big city or whatever and there are things that will just get thrown at oh, you yeah. that you're just not prepared for and you don't expect when you sign up for the job, I'm sure, that this artist is going to lose their phone. But then when they do, you've got to deal exactly, with it. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, I love all my, all my artists and, and I always have tremendous amount of respect for, for the work that they do. I mean, you know, traveling often alone for huge parts of the year and to stand on stage and, and perform these pieces to an international standard in front of, you know, thousands of people. It's 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 a huge ask and it's, it's a yeah tremendous amount of effort that's needed to do that so you know being being in a position where I can do whatever is needed to make them perform at their best I think it's you know it's a really rewarding thing. So are you booking ahead for 2021 or do you know what's happening in terms of that? Most seasons are usually booked at least a year in advance sometimes it can be even two three or even even longer than that but right now I mean it's it's a very tough time because of course a lot of concerts are cancelled and international travel is not yeah, really a thing anymore. Really <laughs> and People aren't quite, don't really have the headspace to book quite so far ahead because people are concentrating on just trying to manage the situation that, that's here right now. But some artists are traveling, you know, slowly but surely. And, and there are lots of amazing um, presenters and organizations out there that are doing a great job of filmmaking music possible. I, th- I mean, it is, I think it will change. Hopefully in time, we'll slowly start to open up more and, and concerts will, will resume. But I do think it will be a different worlds again we're going back to what we we're saying earlier about you know finding the positives that it's very easy to get very negative and say that oh well it's all over and that you know classical music is dying and all this kind of thing but i mean people have been saying that for you know 50 years and it's, it's yeah. still still not dead right. we're still right. here exactly. and i think that <laughs> yeah. for me i think it's a chance to try new things that people have always wanted to try or try and get rid of some things that weren't so good that were kind of yeah. annoying yeah, try and make it a, a better future for our industry. Exactly, and it's a chance to, to do that and to find new ways of bringing music to people. And, and I still believe that, you know, we're, we live in such a technologically kind of obsessed, driven world, you know, and everything is a lot of obsessed with image and kind of superficiality. And 
I think we are sort of threatened by the lack of deep meaning and, and substance in life. You know, everything these days is so temporary and, and disposable and, and transient. And I think classical music provides real substance and deep meaning to life that is very much needed. Mm, a sort of pared down back to basics type. Yeah, thing. a little bit. A, a chance for people to... Like, as you mentioned before, when you take a step back and then you come back to something, it's a little bit of that, the hitting the refresh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why I always believe that, you know, the way we present it might be a little bit different than the way we structured it might be a little bit different. But the result, I think, will always be the same, that it that it is, classical music is something that, that provides just such nourishment and fulfillment to people. And, and that's why it's such an important part of our world. And that's why it's still here. Exactly, that is why it's... Hasn't been killed yet. I'm looking forward to getting my temperature taken at every concert <laughs> that I go to. <laughs> It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah. I had to have my temperature taken when I went into a restaurant the other oh, day. Oh, really? I haven't had any temperatures yeah. taken yet. Oh, really? It's a good thing to do. Yes, I mean, I, I'm not going to complain. I mean, necessary. it's yeah. the way things are. I mean, but, you know, thinking about your temperature taking and then... People have got quite used to, I guess, watching things online and experiencing music that way. But I don't think that that can ever replace the in-person experience of, of, yeah. of a concert and, and sharing music. Because that kind of um, connection between the performer or performers on stage and the audience, that kind of spiritual communion, if you like, is a very special connection. And I think it, what it ultimately leaves us with is a very strong form of emotional connection that brings people together you know irrespective of of culture or or country or language or or anything and that is something that I think is so valuable it's great to be able to experience music in lots of different ways but I don't think you can ever replace the in-person exactly I don't think people are going to think oh well I might as well watch this at home if they are presented with the opportunity to go to a live concert I hope so I do hope so yeah I hope so too there's only so many you know those a cappella videos that you can watch (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) it's just not the same As you may or may not be aware in my podcast, I have a segment called the Wildcard Question Round, which is your opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three choices that I present you. Okay, so your three choices are unexpected talents, favourite concerts, and because this is me, (laughs) food and beverage. Oh my goodness. I think I could do a whole podcast episode about all three of those topics. Uh, I think I'd probably, in terms of lockdown, I think I'd have to go for the concert one. Great. Okay, so can you tell me, what's your favourite concert that you played in and also your favourite concert that you've watched? One thing I do want to mention, actually, um, in terms of playing concerts is, I think, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but the UK, I think, is so lucky have a really thriving amateur music scene and there are so many great amateur symphony orchestras and and music centers around and i've been really lucky to play in one in london it's the academy of st mary le um based at st mary le church which is just um, down the road from paul's run by uh, oboist named alex fryer i mean it is an amateur orchestra but i mean the standard is you know anything but you know, incredibly high standard of music making and, and organization as well. It's an incredibly well-run group. And we've done some really, really great programs and always really enjoyed kind of working with them. And it's quite a different feeling. And like you say, coming back to music and 
playing just for pleasure and not playing kind of in a professional yeah. capacity. You're not earning money, you're, you're just playing for sheer pleasure. So I've really enjoyed working with them over the years. Singular concert. Okay, I've got two. I've got two. I can narrow it into two. Very lucky to play Shostakovich's first violin concerto with orchestra uh, when I was, gosh, oh, maybe six or seven years ago. Oh, I thought you were going to say when I was six or seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I wasn't. I wasn't one of those. Not at all. No. Um, gosh, no. Um, would have been really wow. That would have been impressive. <laughs> that would have been something. That would have been something. But no, not not me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I played it with with a student orchestra in, in Glasgow when I was still studying, and that, that piece is one of my very favourite violin concertos even to this day. And it's an incredible experience to play a concerto like that because the orchestra is just so huge. You know, there's it's just such a muscular piece and it, there's just so much to really get your teeth into with, with a work like that. And I'm, I'm noticing a bit of a theme now because the other concert I was going to mention was also Shostakovich. I was part of a really wonderful string quartet when I was at the Royal Academy and we went to the West Cork Henry Music Festival oh, yeah. um, in Ireland. Our last concert there, we did Shostakovich third string quartet which is probably one of my favourite string quartets. And um, it was one of those performances where it was a piece we played a little, quite a bit beforehand um, in a few other places. But I don't know if you, you know the work, it's quite an elusive piece. It's, it's quite hard to characterise and there are lots of different ways that one can approach it. We'd had kind of hits and misses with it in our other, other performances. And for some reason in this particular performance, it just really came together. That kind of real magic moment where just suddenly it just clicks. And, yeah. That, that was one I, I really remember a lot. It's funny that you mentioned Shostakovich because I think Shostakovich does have that power to really pull you in as an artist when you are playing it because Absolutely, the music yeah. is so highly emotive and also physically, I think, because it's yes, it's yes. so physically demanding, a lot of it, especially some of that really fast, furious stuff, that you can't not be moved after giving it your all. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised that it's super poignant. You. Yeah, because I mean, I, I recently read um, a bit of a bookworm as well. I recently read a great uh, book of music for silenced voices by Wendy Lesser, and it's a biography of Shostakovich, but it concentrates mainly on, on the string quartet. I think, interestingly, with the quartets, I think they're sometimes slightly underrated, actually, because texturally they're not as complex as, say, you know, the Bach quartet, early kind of 20th century quartet. But for me, like you say, there's a real emotional immediacy to them mm. that is so and also kind of quite theatrical quality to them as well that really makes people kind of sit up and, and take notice and it's and going on to my favorite concert that i've watched <laughs> was also just a origin quartet series quite more hall it was one of those kind of bizarre concerts that i went to kind of just off the cuff at the last minute we didn't have any plans they performed the final shostakovich string quartet they have a very special way of performing it and that they perform it in almost complete darkness in Wigmore Hall, which is not something that's that's done very much. Um, they had small lights on each stand, but the hall was almost in, in complete darkness. And they requested that you the applause would not take place until the last light had been turned off. So at the very end of the quartet, I mean, anyone who knows the piece, it basically fades away to nothing. And then each member of the quartet just slowly, one by one, turned off the light on their stand and then the hall was in complete darkness for a few seconds before the, the lights came back on and it was one of the most incredible performances it was just so incredibly powerful I mean obviously the Bordens have 
close affinity with Shostakovich. I mean, Shostakovich, of course, worked with that quartet um, or many of the, the quartets when he, when he was alive. So there's a great tradition there. You felt a little bit like it was Shostakovich's voice actually there, present in the room. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard them play the piece since and it was wonderful, but there was just something about that evening that I don't think could ever be repeated. Yeah. It was just yeah. such a special um, moment, so yeah. And that goes back to what you were talking about, about live music and just really emphasising that every live performance one goes to is going to be different. You know, yeah. If it's the same programme, it's going to be it's going to be different. There's so many different yeah. elements to it. Whereas you can watch the same video recording of a particular performance done on yes, acapella and it's going absolutely. to be the same. Exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. controlled. But in a way, a concert venue is an uncontrolled environment. Oh, totally. Yeah, There's so many things that can affect the uh, environmental factors, I think. It's really, really lovely to hear a trifecta of Shostakovich <laughs> performances. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining me today on the podcast. So where can people find out more about your work and your agency? Our website is keynoteartistmanagement.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I myself am I'm not the best kind of social media person as an individual, but I am trying. So I do have Instagram, but um, yeah, people can, can follow me on there if Lovely. You know what? Instagram was one of those things that it took me a long time to get into. And for the first year or so that I had Instagram, I just thought, what on earth is this? But I actually prefer it now. I think it's my favorite social media platform. Yeah, I mean, I think with any of these kind of social media tools, I mean, sorry, I'm going back and back now to parallels, but they, they can be an incredibly powerful tool for good and or evil. So you have to it's a fine balance to yeah. tread. You have to use it responsibly, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I had a, a very interesting conversation, actually, with an artist recently. We were talking about social media, and um, they're quite active on social media. We were discussing, you know, what, what should you be posting? What shouldn't you be posting? You know, what, what... And I made the connection. I said, well, for me, if you think about, you know, when you're interpreting a work, for example, you know, even if it's a work that is very heavily you know, detailed score and there's a huge amount of history and rhetoric and stuff for you to kind of follow, there's still a huge amount of decisions that you have to make mm. as a performer. Ask yourself the question when you're practicing something, you know, why exactly are you doing this bowing or fingering or phrasing? Or are you doing it because, well, that's kind of what my teachers, 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 bowings that I've got copied into my part says, and, or, you know, that's what everybody else does, or that's what I think other people should do. And, you know, that's not a very good reason mm. to make that decision. And the same thing applies to, you know, social media, in my opinion. I mean, you shouldn't really be posting a picture of what you've eaten. That's what everybody does. You know, that's that's not a good reason. You should be posting what you had for breakfast because, I don't know, you, you came across this really cool um, pancake recipe that you wanted yeah. to try and share with people. You know, it's the same. It's the same. It's putting yourself in the audience's or the viewer's shoes and thinking, yeah, absolutely. would I want to see this on exactly. my feet? Would yeah. I want to see this performed in this way? Is there a valid reason behind yeah. all this? Because I suppose in a way, social media is a little bit like a performance platform. And so you've got to make those decisions on how you're going to present yourself to the people who are going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's not true to what you really feel, then it's not going to connect with the people that are viewing it in the same way that, any decision that you make instrumentally or, or vocally, whatever your discipline is, if it's not coming from a place that's, that's true to you, then it, yeah. it's not really going to resonate with your audience. I think often musicians should, you know, use their training a little more to kind of solve these other problems because they have all the answers. Yeah. And that's why you're here to tell us these things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to help. 
thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Daniel Rainey. He is now my first call for tips related to Super Mario 64, as I've now purchased that game for the Switch. Turns out, it's quite difficult. Mario's swimming levels are terrible. I die a lot. This week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me segment comes courtesy of cellist Molly McFurter, who's written a candidly honest piece about life as a recent graduate during a pandemic. One of the biggest things for me was the lack of preparation for being your own business and all that that entails. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that who I am as a musician is completely entwined with who I am outside of playing the cello. For me, that's honest, very sensitive, and perhaps most relevantly to my point, pretty introverted. I absolutely hate being the centre of attention, which is pretty juxtaposed to being on stage for a living. My confidence comes completely from living and breathing the music that I'm making with others at that given moment. So I spent my student years completely focused on honing my craft and growing as a musician. When I graduated to start my freelance career, all I can say is that I felt completely overwhelmed and unprepared, and not for the reasons I thought I might. Suddenly, I had to have this self-assurance away from music making that I never felt I absolutely had to do. Finding my own concert venues, negotiating fees, what am I worth? Setting up professional profiles where, no matter how you swing them, seem just the slightest bit full of oneself. Still cringing at mine. Writing cover letters detailing why you think you are the best. Setting myself up as a sole trader. What even is that? Applying for jobs away from performing that you don't even want, but need to pay your rent. Juggling accepting high-profile work when it comes in, whilst managing the ethos of being reliable, whilst also rearranging the other work. And, dare I say the words, tax return? Then came COVID-19. Undoubtedly the hardest, most desolate time for not just shiny new freelancers, but all musicians. I don't need to explain further. It's turned out to be a curiously defining time for me. My playing work is now completely self-set up, homemade by me and my quartet. I still don't push forward the I'm amazing and please book me vibe. I'm still not sure what a soul trader actually is, even though I am one. And when I stop and think about the music I've made in the last three months, I can't believe I had the skills and self-assurance to set it all up on my own during a global pandemic. But honestly, I can say that I've shared some of the most engaging music of my life and I'm loving every second I get to do it right now. But one thing is for sure, Music College certainly did not prepare me for it. I have to thank Molly for that very touching, relatable and open account. Indeed, nothing throws you into the deep end quite like a global pandemic. Many musicians have been exercising seemingly newfound entrepreneurial skills during this time to ensure they can continue making music, which I'm so happy to hear about. Molly's the cellist of the aforementioned homemade Corin Quartet, who have been busy over the summer performing lots of concerts outdoors and have some more concerts and streams coming up. They're in the middle of a Beethoven quartet cycle. No big deal. (laughs) Details in the show notes. 
If you have something that Music College didn't prepare you for that you'd like shared or discussed on the podcast, then let me know. You can email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Huge thanks to Daniel Rainey for sharing his insights as my guest today and thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I must mention... There is a YouTube channel now. Go look at that. And thank you for spreading the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye.